Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. <laughs> this is The Rock Podcast with me, Denny Somak. Now, I'm a rock historian, producer, and best-selling author. On this episode, we have a truly interesting conversation from my archives, and you won't hear it anywhere else. If anyone deserves the title of the fifth Beatle, it's George Martin. Here, in a candid interview with Carol Thatcher, daughter of former Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher, a.k.a. the Iron Lady, recorded in the early 80s when she had a talk show on London radio. Of course, she discusses with George about discovering the Beatles, working with them in the studio, and the early days of his own career. There are a lot of other revelations. I think you'll enjoy listening to Carol Thatcher and this unique conversation. Because my guest in between now and one o'clock sometimes has been called the fifth Beatle. He's George Martin, who produced all the Beatles records and is still one of the leading men in the business today. George, good evening. Good evening. And many thanks indeed for coming in. Now, you've just told me you don't like talking about the Beatles all the time. As you said, it's a bit like someone asking you about your mother. I quite understand how you feel. <laughs> so I think we'll divide your career up to sort of pre-Beatles, Beatles and post-Beatles. Huh. Can, you, can, can you just tell us, I mean, what was your earliest acquaintance? You know, how did you get acquainted with music for starters oh well i was always sort of interested in music even as a kid you know um we had a piano in the house and i i I started playing when i was about five years old i was kind of self-taught and i didn't um i didn't go to music college or anything like that um and i didn't really take up music as a career until after i came out of the fleet air arm when i hadn't any career to go to but um i was advised to take it up because i was good at it it simple as that and you, t- you took up a musical career as opposed to your parents, uh, in great opposition to your parents, who wanted you to become either an architect or a civil servant, so I read in your book. Right. You resisted parental pressures. Well, I, I, I went to work for a quantity surveyor for a very short period of time. His name was Coffin, and, and the work was rather like that too. You did say in the, in the, in the book that your greatest love was classical music. Um, you know, yet you've spent most of your life in, in the pop industry. Do you see that as a sort of coming down from classical or a sort of whole new creative challenge? Not at all. No, I, I think that um, I started out in recording work, actually doing classical music. I started producing classical records, but I was working for a label that was a very small one in those days, Parlophone, and we had to do everything. We had to do light orchestral music, classical music, jazz, Scottish country dance music, and all, all, everything. You had to be a jack of all trades. And um, I loved it. And I found that uh, recording the so-called pop music was really much more creative. Because when you record um, classical music, all you can do is interpret something that's been there for hundreds of years. And so many people have done it before, and your interpretation is just another version of the same thing. When you're working in the medium of rock and roll or pop, you actually are building something. It may not be as good, but it's, uh, it is more creative. What were those early days with EMI on the recording scene like? Mm. Well, very different from today. I mean, 
when I first went into the studios, we were still recording on wax. We weren't recording on tape because it was considered too um, unreliable. Uh, they, you know, it was a sort of newfangled invention in 1950. And would you believe it that when we made records in those days, there was an, a lathe in the control room which was turned by a falling weight because electric motors weren't steady enough. I mean, it's, it does How sound... amazingly primitive. <laughs> I know, appalling. So uh, that was my sort of uh, beginnings in the record business. And even, even, you know, in the times of the Beatles, which was 12 years later, we still only had mono and stereo recording. We didn't have any multi-track recordings at all. Gosh, it must seem an awful long time ago. I mean, how do you feel looking forward to digital recording? Well, I've already been doing digital recording, and it's a marvellous thing, of course. Um, doesn't improve the music any, though. I mean, music is still the same, and it just makes life, uh, the actual production of it, a little bit different, that's all, and maybe a bit quicker, maybe a bit easier, that's all. What was the role of the record producer in those days? He was a kind of manager, more than the others. There was, the, the word producer wasn't used, um, in fact, my first title, my first title was uh, A and R manager, artists and repertoire manager, and um, the job was basically to look after the artists and make sure they were happy and look after them in the studio and uh, give them advice about music too, and make sure the engineer did his job and book all the musicians and book the studio. It was a kind of general um, fixer. When you were put in charge of the Parlophone label in 1955, what what did you really want to do with your own record label? Did you think sort of, whoopee, now I'm going to do so-and-so? I mean, how did you want to make your mark on the pop recording industry? Well, uh, in one way I was lucky because in those days Parlophone was a nothing label. It was the poor relation of the EMI outfit and we didn't have any, we hadn't, didn't have the advantage of any great catalogues coming from America. And I used to look enviously at my brothers across at HMV in Columbia who had um, RCA Victor imports and uh, Columbia of America imports. So they had people like Elvis Presley, they had um, Guy Mitchell and Frankie Lane and Doris Day and all these kind of people. Um, I had nothing. I had just our own British uh, market and I had to build it. So it was a marvellous challenge and I couldn't very well go down because we were pretty well down there anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you were very much a trailblazer, and one of the sort of new areas you pioneered was recording theatrical humour. Mm -hmm. um, did you have a great interest in comedy anyway? Yeah, I was. I was always sort of fond of dramatics and and and, and I, I guess you know funny people. And um, I met up with P. D. Ustinov and made a record with him, uh, which was great fun. And uh, I thought it'd be a good idea to do more of this. And Why hadn't humour been recorded before? Well, it had, but not very... Well, I mean, in this country, the, 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 the way of um, humour on records existed was in things like the Laughing Policeman record. and um, th th We do have a tradition of it. Cicely Courtney made, made a, a super record of Laughing Gas many years ago. Um, but it, they were all kind of set pieces. And I found when I started making comedy records that they, it was very difficult because you had to be very, very careful with your material before you even went into the studio. So when I started recording Peter Sellers, I spent a tremendous amount of time doing the spade work of preparing the ground before we got into the studio, making sure the, you know, the material was right and how we were going to do it. Why, why, what are the pitfalls to be avoided in recording comedy? Um, not telling jokes for a start, because they don't last. You know, once you've heard them, they'll fall flat. So my, I, I found that the best way of doing comedy was to exploit characters. And this is where Peter was so good, of course. And someone like Irene Handel, who was marvellous, um, was able to put humour into, uh, into sound by just an inflection of the voice or a phrase that she would 
she would use. Were recording sessions with the likes of Peter Sellers and Spike Milligan absolutely hilarious? I mean, were they as funny as the end result? Yeah, so, some of them were very amusing. I mean, we just had a, a great riotous time. You know, we were, uh, Spike and Peter, when they got together, were pretty anarchic. And, uh, <laughs> and, and you know, I remember one occasion when we, we, we built up a whole pile of uh, studio chairs and rostrums in the mi- middle of the studio because we wanted a noise of a tremendous sort of um, row at the end with, with things being flung around. And you didn't have sound effects on tape? Well, no, because we didn't have... Well, we, I mean, the BBC library had very good sound effects, but we couldn't use that, and uh, we had to make our own sound effects. A real live fight, if you wanted to record one. Right, or else make them up, you know, in whatever way we did. And so in this particular instance, we were kicking chairs around, and I was in the studio helping them, and Peter got carried away, and it was during the... Um, there's a particular track, uh, which was on his first album, of um, An Irish Jig, and uh, there's a kind of fight sequence in that. And in the middle of it, Peter sort of kicked one of the chairs more viciously than, than he'd ever done before, and it went right across the studio and hit me on the shin. And, God, it hurt. And I yelled, yelled out. <laughs> yeah, and that's on the record. Genuine shrieks Oh, pain. really, genuine, I can tell you. I've still got the scar to this day. <laughs> How did you find Flanders and Swan, that duo? They were charming, terribly charming, um, and marvellous people. And, of course, Donald is still going very strong. Um, and again, I loved Michael's humour. Um, they were unique. I, of course, you, I don't suppose you ever saw them. You're too young. But they, they were tremendous. They, they put on a show in London, which went to Broadway. And um, they, they had uh, quite a few years of great success. One of my favourite comedy groups was actually Beyond the Fringe. I mean, I think Jonathan Miller and sort of the other trio were absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. Um, where did you first encounter them? And did you immediately think, right, must get recording? This well, lot? yes, I heard about them. They were in the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, first of all, before they got famous. And then they ca- they went to Cambridge, and I, I saw them before they went there, and I made arrangements to record them because I thought they were so good. And I took the recording van up to Cambridge to do an album with them and record them live on stage. And that was the first record of Beyond the Fringe. And um, later on, of course, they came to London and they were a huge success there. So the record was a huge success too. And we made more records after that and I got to know them very well. Again, they kind of took over from the goons in a way. They, had, they exploited that kind of humour in the same way that Monty Python's com- carried on from them. Mm. I was just about to say, sort of looking back at that comedy, which, I mean, thank heavens, by recording it, you sort of preserve for posterity. How do you compare that sort of theatrical humour with Monty Python and not the nine o'clock news and the sort of humour we have today? It's much more vicious today, isn't it? It, it? it reflects, I'm afraid, life today, which is also much more vicious and violent. Um, and humour is much crueller than it used to be. I think it's very funny. I was I mean, about to say, is it less or more funny for that? Um, I don't know whether it's less or more funny, but it certainly is funny. And Sometimes it goes beyond the pale. Sometimes the humour is a bit too near the bone. Um, but largely, I think, you know, when you see John Cleese on Forty Towers, <laughs> most of that humour is very cruel, but it's very funny indeed. You've had, George, a fantastic career uh, uh, as a composer. Do you find it easy to write music, and what are the logistics of actually sitting down and writing a piece? Uh... When people say writing music, they think of composing music, which isn't necessarily the same thing. You know, I mean, physically putting something down on paper isn't necessarily... um, I mean, someone like Paul McCartney, for example, doesn't write music. He he thinks of it and he he plays it and he sings it and performs it and remembers all that he does as he goes along. Um, And generally, to get something really good... I mean, anybody can write a tune, 
It's dead simple. The trouble is that they'll inv invariably end up with something that somebody's written before. So to be really original and good is really quite difficult. Um, as for scoring and that kind of uh, writing music, it's jolly hard work. It's, we haven't really progressed much since Dickens' day. And if you're writing a film score, um, you have to write probably about 50 minutes of full orchestral score, and you've got to do it in, in the space of about 30 days. And it's just sheer drudgery. Well, you, of course, wrote film scores for a number of films, including Yellow Submarine, Divinette Die, and A Hard Day's Night, etc. Mm -hmm. um, which do you remember as being the hardest? Is there anyone that you sort of stand out that stands out? Um, the hardest work? Mm. Well, I don't know. I think in terms of work, they're all pretty much the same. Um, that doesn't mean to say they weren't enjoyable, because a thing like Yellow Submarine was enormously enjoyable because I was given complete free reign. We did that film in start to finish in, in only a year, which is remarkable for, for an animated film. Disney used to take a minimum of two. And um, we had to work so fast because the money was drying up. And because of that, the director said to me, well, we'll have to write the mu you'll have to write the music while we're making the film. Because normally in animated films, you, you do the music first and they animate to it, rather than the other way around in, in, in live action films. And so I would receive from him a half-finished reel of film and he would say, uh, have a look at this on your moviola and write what you think is right for it, and we'll sort it out afterwards. So I had a completely blank, blank, mm. blank sheet, and I was able to do what I wanted, which was very nice, very enjoyable. Can you remember the first bit of music you ever wrote? Yeah. <laughs> if I had a piano, I'd play it for you. Oh, a little piece called The Spider's Dance, and I was eight years old. <laughs> oh, how wonderful. <laughs> I, I asked you, you know, do you find easy to write music and doesn't take you a long time? Because I think Elton John was quoted as saying he never spent more than half an hour on a song. I mean, is it one of those things where you get an inspiration, you sit down and do it and that's it? Or does it require sort of much sitting down and laborious I, hard work? For I think it varies with the people, you know. Um, Elton, I'm not sure, I don't really believe Elton on that, incidentally. I think he takes much more pains than mm. the, in, in his, because he's written some super songs. But uh, I've been compiling a book recently uh, on making music, and I've been talking to a lot of people, and I had a very interesting chat with Paul Simon. And um, he is now, every song that he makes now, he, he carefully annotates, he keeps a kind of daily diary of everything that he does and he showed me it he, you know he i first started thinking about this song six weeks ago when i had the idea of uh lightning on the sidewalks of new york or something like that like a lyrical idea and he would write down on his pad the date and the idea that he would have and he would come back to it and work over his ideas and, and work as were actually work at a song and he said he would allocate particular times of the day for working on it too generally early morning and say i'm going to work on songwriting this morning this is what I'm going to do. And so it's a, a completely different approach from the um, easy laid-back saying, oh, one day the muse will strike and I'll write a great song. It doesn't really work like that. How did um, you come to write the David Frost TV theme? Uh, well, I was asked to. <laughs> <laughs> in the same way that I wrote the theme one for Radio 1. Yes. Um, in the case of David Frost, you know, he said, would you like to do a signature tune for me? So, in fact, when I, what I did, I did a kind of send-up of him because he was the jet setter of jet setters and always doing always sort of in swinging style so I did a kind of Cod Sinatra kind of tune uh, mm. I don't know if you know the tune no no I do I mean, I'm just wondering what sort of image when you sat down trying to compose you well, know, that composing was it. it were you trying to project I yeah I was, try I was really sending him up and saying this is what you want to be David isn't it and uh, gave him that and he was delighted with it mm -hmm. when you sit down to compose a piece of music what are the sort of main influences 
um, really what the client wants, if I'm thinking of in, in those terms, you know, if I'm, if, I don't, if I'm not writing for anybody but myself, then I just write what I think is um, the most beautiful thing I can think of. So that, uh, I mean, recently I wrote a suite for harmonica and strings for Tommy Riley, and that really was just for myself. And it's kind of classical, and um, I like it very much, but it's not the kind of thing that will sell. Would you rather write music or produce records? Um, I'd like to do both, and I'd always do, you know. One of my problems in life has been that I've been fairly versatile without being terribly good at one thing, so that I'm a dabbler. Uh, I've always dabbled, <laughs> and fortunately made a success out of dabbling. But um, I like doing lots of different things. I'd hate to do one thing forever. Right, perhaps I'm just going to quote you a chunk from, from uh, Michael Whale's book, Vox Pops, and he said, among the many things the Beatles did for pop, perhaps the most important, was the emphasis they caused to be put upon composers. Would you agree with that statement? Um, they certainly had a great deal of influence on people, yeah. Um, I don't know. I pro proved, he went on to say, that a group was better off musically and financially composing its own work. Better off musically than financially. And, no, and, financially. and financially, yeah. Oh, that's true, undoubtedly. Mm. No question about it. Um, you know, you make more, much more money if you do your own stuff, don't you? Yeah. But um, do you think the Beatles, as a group, put any special emphasis on composers? Mm-hmm. I think on the importance of them, or? Well, I think that the success that they generated throughout the world did an awful lot for music, and an awful lot for music in this country, an awful lot for this country too. Mm. I think it's really in America. Uh, even to this day, people in this country don't really realize what happened in 1963 and 4 in America when we really took America by storm. And that opened the floodgates and earned us a tremendous amount of money of invisible export. Well, we'll talk about the Beatles in the next half of Nightline after the news at 12.31, Nightline on LBC. See, I'm Cal Thatcher, and between now and one o'clock, we're talking to George Martin. George, I'm sure that you don't really want to be asked, but how did you sign up the Beatles? Um, I was looking for a group. Uh, in 1962, I was running the part of own label. I was already had quite a few artists that were selling very well, but um, I felt that I could do something extra. I heard from a publisher that there was a guy walking around with some tapes that was interesting, and he was be my publisher, and he sent me Brian Epstein. Brian Epstein came in and played a disc of the Beatles, and I thought, well, it was moderately interesting. I think I'd better have a look at the chaps told Brian to bring the boys down to London. He groaned inwardly, I'd learnt later, because it was his last chance. He'd been around every other record company in the world. And had the them turned down. Yep. And uh, I spent an afternoon with them in the studios, Abbey Road, and I thought they were marvellous. And I signed them. You, you were hooked for starters, were you? Yeah, I was, hooked, um, I was hooked on them more than their music, because at that stage I, I was not at all convinced that they could write music, but they had something different, you see. And they, they were very... Great people to be with. Um, I learned afterwards that they were great goon fans and they knew about me, so I was pretty famous to them. And um, they were prepared to like me, but I certainly was very charmed by them. If you listen to, say, a hundred records to, to pick a figure, how hard is it to pick the ones that are going to be hits? I mean, you, you titled your book All You Need Is Ears, but I mean, it's something more, it's a sixth sense or instinct or what? Just pot luck. I mean, how do you choose a hit? Um, well, of course, there are certain guidelines, but it's, I, it's much more difficult now than ever it's been, particularly in this country, because... Why? Well... Did you often take part musically in, in, in Beatles recording sessions or rehearsals? Oh, yes, very much so, yes. D I, doing what? 
well, sometimes I used to play with them, but generally, I mean, obviously I used to organize the music um, and participate in the arranging and just working generally with them. It was a, it was a team. The five of us were, were um, sort of fairly equal people in the studio. Certainly to begin with, I, I used to control them more, and then later on they controlled me as they got more successful. But it, we always worked very closely together. If you had to give a sort of in a nutshell a reason for the incredible worldwide success of Beatlemania, what would it be? I mean, they obviously burst upon the scene at the right time, but what was their own special magic or the special ingredient? Well, I think you just said the most important thing, that was timing. I think that the world was ready for something, and young people were were just about to break over the traces, and they wanted a something uh, kind of symbol of that. And the Beatles happened to be coming along at the right time. Having said that... Um, I think it's unlikely that we will get such a combination of talents again within, you know, in, in a short space of time because John Lennon and Paul McCartney were incredibly talented people. I mean, Paul still is. Uh, extraordinarily talented songwriters. And for the two of them to get together in itself was amazing. But for, to have them joined by George and Ringo, tremendous personalities in their own mm. right, uh, to form a team, it was invincible. Looking back on it, I, I, I was... It's extraordinarily lucky that, that, that they ever came together, and I was very lucky that I joined them too. Well, looking back, you obviously feel that you couldn't possibly have missed. Were there times in the early days when you thought, help, we're never going to make it? With them? Mm. No, never. No, never? Honestly not, no. When I first saw them, I, I knew that there was something there. When we made the first record, I knew it wasn't going to be a hit, but I knew all I had to do was find the right song and I would have a, a big hit with them. I didn't know at that stage they could write it. Mm. But when they came along with Please Please Me, I knew they could. What, I, I just about to say, how are hits made? I mean, how do you plug a record? What sort of hype does it need to get a record to the top of the charts? Well, again, nowadays it's different from what it was in those days. Um, in those early days, we, we had tremendous... Uh, television was beginning to mean something. And I think our first break with Please Please Me came when uh, we got um, Ready Steady Go... A performance from you know, which um, was done by Dick James was was plugging for us at that time, and he became their publisher, and he fixed it with Phil Jones, who's now very big in television, and he was the producer of the, that particular show, and that helped enormously. Uh, but of course, since those days, television has grown much more in, important in importance anyway, and today there's so much competition, there's so many records that are made that are good, that you have to have a a combined forces assault from all directions, land, sea and air. You've got to really go for television, you've got to go for radio, uh, you've got to go for uh, advertising on buses even and posters and so on. It really is a, a massive thing to do now, to break somebody new. Which was more exciting, become, um, you know, getting the top of the charts in Britain or in the US? Oh, obviously the US, because mm -hmm. it's such a big, so, so much a bigger market. Um, uh, over the past 10 or 15 years, I've concentrated on, on America and... Um, when you think, I mean, if the population is four times the size of yeah. Britain, but the record buying population or the record sales are much larger than that. I would say six or seven times that, that of Britain. What do you think Beatles did for the British image in the States? Uh, they put Britain on the, on, the British, on the American map. You know, if you stop anybody in America now and ask them, say, one thing which will think, make you think of Britain, mm. one, one person or one, one thing, and they'll say Beatles. Still? Still. That's it, remarkable, it's, it's isn't legendary, it? It's legendary, yes. What, what was your most memorable experience of being sort of out on the road with the Beatles? Because, I mean, there must have been scenes of mass hysteria wherever you went. Yes, well, um, New York, the first time they hit America, was amazing because 
I wasn't prepared for the sight of middle-aged men wearing beetle wigs walking down Fifth Avenue. <laughs> no, what a sight. <laughs> <laughs> and also, um, I was astonished to find that every radio station in the New York area, and there are many of them, mm. um, was playing a Beatles record at any time in the day. You could not turn the dial and not find a Beatle record being played. It was absolute saturation. So they, all day, and every station, Beatle music was being heard. Must have been an extraordinary feeling for you, mm, wasn't it? Absolutely amazing. I didn't believe it. Three five three eight one double one is the number to call if you'd like to give us a ring on Nightline. George Martin is my guest, and George, if you put the headphones on, mm -hmm. we can have a word with Richard from Slough. Good evening. Hello. Hello. Carol and George. Hello. Hello. You got the headphones on? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. Uh, George, I'd like to talk to you about Beatles. Uh, I'm afraid. What a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> This is all done by people who own the original masters, in other words, the record company. Um, and you can't blame them, I suppose, for milking the, 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 the cow a little bit further. Uh, they keep digging them up and repackaging them and, and putting out Beatle love songs and Beatle rock and roll and, and complete Beatles and so on. In fact, I had a, had a call from a friend of mine in the States the other day saying um, he just heard that they, you could buy the, co the absolute complete works of Beatles, all the music and lyrics and the records, as one package now for $350. Should he do it? And I said, no, for heaven's sake, don't. It's an awful waste of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just, heard, I just heard the other day that, that uh, the latest compilation has apparently gone gold and it was released last week. Yeah. So, I mean, there's a market for them, but personally, I don't feel that... I think, I, I mean, what do you feel about the possibility of well, there's very little. There's very little unreleased stuff at all, and what there is isn't very good. Um, I, they still haven't put out the record I made of How Do You Do It, which we, which we didn't rec we didn't release when um, that was the second thing I did after Love Me Do, and I made it with Jerry and the Pacemakers instead, and that was quite good. Um, but the rest of the stuff is pretty pretty much rubbish, I'm afraid. Oh, well, that's not record, you see. I mean, that's, that's like anybody doing a broadcast, and you can yeah. tape that, and, and there's a lot of bootlegs of that going around, and some of it's quite good. Richard, Richard are you a great Beatles fan? Um, yes. Yes. Um, in fact, I'd like to know about what George thinks of the... Uh, in fact, they've just been released officially, what were known for ages as the Decca tapes. I'm the, sorry, I didn't understand what you said. The Decca tapes, the Beatles' um, 96 audition with Decca. I believe Brian Epstein... Oh yes, uh, they were the they were the demo sessions, yeah. I presume. Well, they were auditions, were they, or something? Yeah. Oh, right. I, have, I haven't heard those. Mm. I must confess. Oh, it's, they've just been put out an official record. Like I think it, uh, Brian had them made up as as a tape, which he took round to all the record producers. It may well have been something I heard in those you know twenty years ago before I signed them. I couldn't remember, to be honest. Yeah. Oh, well, uh, one other thing: How are you getting on with Paul now? Fine. We've just um, almost finished the second album, which uh, will be coming out in the new year. Thank okay. you very much for asking. Yeah, that's all right. I'm looking forward to it, actually. Good. Victor, thank you very much indeed for that call. George, I've just been reminded that I must ask you, because one of the engineers here um, asked me to ask you, um, Strawberry Fields, were there two versions and you had the front half, the, the first half of one, the second half of the other? Was that how the whole record was yeah, that's absolutely put true. together? We did actually record it, first of all, um, 
in a fairly heavy way with fairly heavy rock drumming from Ringo and so on, and which worked out fine, but it wasn't really the way that uh, I saw it, but I didn't confess to that until John came to me and said, um, I'd like to do it again. And we'd never, we'd never recut a, a title before. He said, would you mind if we try another go at it? I said, well, fine, you know, I'll go along with that. I d- didn't quite see it that way. So we went and made another record, um, in which, in this time, I did a score for it. I did some cellos and, and trumpets. And uh, after that session, John said, well, that's fine. And then after a couple of days, he rang me again and said, look, I still like a bit of the first one. Can't we put the two together? So I said, well, there's only two problems. One is that they're a semitone apart in pitch, and they're also different tempos. He said, go on, you can fix it, surely. Well, fortunately, the errors, you know, the errors of speed and, and pitch were the right, right way around. In other words, the, the sharper one was actually faster than the, than the flatter one. So I was able to vary speed the, 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 uh, the, the recording and cut the two together. Good Lord. <laughs> there were also two versions, weren't there, of Love Me Do? Yes, but that the distinguishing factor there was um, very, very small. Uh, there's a tambourine on one, which Ringo's playing, and on the other one, Ringo's playing drums. And the one with him playing drums was the big hit. I think the, the one on the tambourine was one issued on the record, on, mm-hmm. the, on an uh, LP, I mean. I, looking back, if you had to choose one Beatles hit which was your favourite or one that's special to you for any reason, which would it be? People keep asking me this, have I got a favourite song? And I, I genuinely answer, I haven't really got a favourite. I've got a lot of favourites. Mm. Um, but I think if I had to choose a double-sided single out of all the singles we issued, I would choose Strawberry Fields and Penny Lane because they they are the epitome of John and Paul. John on Strawberry Fields and Paul on Penny Lane. I think they're marvellous tracks. You can still ask people today which they sort of rate as the great albums and a lot of people will say Sgt Pepper. What was it about that record that was so absolutely unique? Well it was different from anything we'd done before. Um, when we were making it I thought maybe we were bit in, being a bit pretentious and I was a little bit worried about that but it was great fun to do because we were letting our hair down and we, we, we weren't going to anybody for permission. We just did what we thought was right. And it was very creative in the studio and, and great fun. Um, but having when it came out, I was uh, astonished to find that people were with us on it. I thought we were. I thought we pushed, kicked over the traces a little bit too much, you know. But it was great. Was it hard making it? I mean, today when you think of sort of twenty-four track on four track, it was difficult. But I mean, the only difficulty there was keeping your head and remembering that uh, what you had to do for the future. In other words, when you bouncing one four track to another, you had to remember how much bass you're going to lose and what the balance was going to be like when the drums were merging with the guitar, that kind of thing. Because once you did that, you were fixed. Um, but that's just the discipline and experience of recording, I guess, that enabled me to do that. Uh, if it had been done on multi-track, it would have been easier. Mm-hmm. But I don't think it would be much different, though. Is it easier to make records today because of all the technological aids and multi-track? Yes, it's much easier for an inexperienced person to make a very good record than it used to be. But is it this, isn't, is this um, why we've got sort of so many more pe- so many more pop records? It does help, yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you mean a novice can find it easier, finds it easier? Yeah, anybody can make a, a hit record nowadays. What, I, what are your observations? I mean, you've been in the business for 30 years about sort of when you started and now. Um, has it got better? Has it got worse? Or fashion's changed? Or, I mean, what, what are the main differences? Um, well, we've talked about the difference in technology. Mm. Um, and, of course, there's much more competition now. When I, when I started in the business, there were probably only 12 people like me in the whole country making records. Yes. Now it seems that every third person I meet is a record producer. <laughs> <laughs> or at least uh, trying to be one. 
Um, so the, the whole thing has become much more pervasive. And of course, with that has gone um, a certain amount of fame, I guess. So that you know, if you, I was lucky to be there at the beginning, so uh, therefore I'm I'm I'm, I'm sort of st- all right now. But it would be very difficult, I think, to start at the bottom and work your way up now. Mm. I, I would be. A, I'd be horrified if I had to do it now. Well, your name always comes up as the sort of, you know, the business's greatest record producer, so to speak. Um, who else would you put in that category? I oh, mean, who would you regard as your, as your fellow trailblazers? Oh, there or? are lots of great producers and lots of great musicians, um, not only in, in this country but in America. I mean, one of my dearest friends is Quincy Jones, and he's great at producing um, records. And... Um, Although we've crossed swords in the past, there have been some great people like Phil Spector made some marvellous records. And in this country, there's a great young talent. Um, there's Martin Rushant, as you, you know, has produced an awful lot of hits with Human League. And, mm. and uh, oh, there's a tremendous amount of people. Chris Thomas, one of my protégés, a very, very good producer. Um, it would be invidious to go on with names because I can't remember them all. <laughs> I had Jonathan King on the programme a few weeks back, who I must say never stopped talking for a, sing- for, for, for a single minute. And um, what do you think his contribution to the pop scene was, other than Over the Moon? Um, oh, everyone's gone to the moon, sorry. Jonathan's very, very clever because he, he was able to kind of... He was a f- he's got a kind of computerised mind. He, he, he sort of works out very carefully what a hit requires and then um, makes sure it gets it. it it's... Um, it's a very calculated form, I think, of, of recording, but um, none, no, no worse for that. Do you regard today's pop music as music? And I say that given, I mean, what I'm really driving at is given that they can involve synthesizers, harmonizers, and all sorts of technological aids mm. to, I know, change things or fudge things. I mean, does this allow them basically to get away with blue murder on sort of pure music, the fact that they can cover up mistakes and change it and fix sounds basically um, it isn't no i wouldn't really say that i think you've still got to be musical and you've still got to, be, got to be good it is true that you can put people more in tune by means of harmonizers than you could do before and it's true that you can do an awful lot of editing and jiggery pokery and you can with synthesizers make an awful lot of sound but i think people are re- rebelling a little bit against that too I, i've heard there's more live sessions taking place now and people actually singing with orchestras you know mm. um I, I, I don't think that all these technological advances have helped music all that much. Are there great differences in taste, do you think, between American and British um, tastes in music? Mm, tremendous differences right now. Um, we're much more adventurous in this country. We're much Which is more unusual. A- Normally it's vice versa, isn't it? Well, I wouldn't think so. No, I think we've always been adventurous. I think we've always had the guts to, to sort of uh, do extraordinary things. We've, we're, we're an eccentric nation, and our music is eccentric, I think. Um, we we make some appalling records. We make some brilliant ones, uh, but we always have a go. In America, they make great records and they're very consistently good, but they're a little bit bland. They're a little bit too good sometimes. George, once you'd stopped stopped working with the Beatles, were you tempted to say, "I'll do something else"? Because you had, of course, worked with the greatest group there'll ever be, or were you determined to sort of carry on in the pop? pop scene and work with, with, with new groups? I mean, what were your thoughts at the time? Well, when the Beatles disintegrated um, and I knew I wouldn't be making any more with them, I was in a way quite relieved because I devoted almost a decade to making them my number one priority and I knew I didn't have to do that So, and I could do what I wanted. I could record who I wanted. So it was a great relief to me to be able to accept commissions to do 
particular projects. So I would do an album with one person, and if I didn't want to do another album with him, I needn't. And on that basis, I worked with some very interesting people, and uh, no blood lost if we didn't go on working with each other, you know. Um, we still remain friends, if you see what I mean. And I was able to sort of um, be more versatile. So uh, I, did a, I did a couple of albums with Jeff Beck. Mm -hmm. I did an, an album with Stan Getz. Uh, I did an album with Cleo Lane. Uh, I did quite a few albums with a group called America. Yes. Um, I did a super album with a group called the Mahavishnu Orchestra, which is a very, very sort of um, advanced form of jazz with the London Philharmonic Orchestra. So I was able to indulge myself without having to bear that awesome responsibility of saying, gosh, I've got their careers to look after, which is what I had to do before then. Yes, I mean, in a way you sort of enjoyed the sort of new creative freedom that mm -hmm. you know, being released from the Beatles gave you. That's right. What, what recording ambitions do you have? I, what would you like to do next? Rest. <laughs> 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 no, this has been quite a hard year, so I'm, I'm quite looking forward to having a bit of a break. Um, but um, that doesn't mean to say I'm not going to make more record. Uh, I, I, I certainly will. Is it, is it a sort of compulsive drug? I mean, will you ever want to retire? Oh, sure. There's, there's so many things I still... When you say retire, I don't think I'll ever go and sort of uh, tend the garden for the rest of my life or anything like that. But there's a lot of things I do want to do that I never get time for. Yes. Uh, I like making things. And I like, I've got so many hobbies, but I, I never really get time for So I, I'm looking forward to doing more of that. Might you not still spend more time on Montserrat where you've got a recording studio? <laughs> <laughs> well, I do go to Montserrat quite a lot. Um, I like going there, but um, it is a workplace. People, people think I live there, you know, which is extraordinary, and I get rather irate with them. They think I'm a tax exile. And in, in fact, what I'm doing is actually sort of earning money and bringing home the bacon, and I get rather irate about that. And people think you do nothing but sort of sit under swaying palm trees. One of the groups, one of the most successful groups you've, what you've worked with recently is, is Ultravox. Mm -hmm. how, did, how, how did your association with that group start? Um, well, they, are, they suggested, they asked me if I would work with them, and I listened to their stuff, and I, I, knew, I knew Vienna anyway, and then I got to their albums and listened to them, and realized they were very musical people. I met them, liked them, and so we agreed to work. And um, I did enjoy it very much. They're very creative people. Midjur is a very fine musician and great guitar player, mm -hmm. and um, the, all, all four of them were, were a, a joy to work with. That's all from me, Cal Thatcher, on Nightline Tonight. After the politics of childbirth, and we looked at President Reagan and wound up talking about George Martin. That's the lot. Thank you. That's it for this edition of The Rock Podcast. We're available on all the usual platforms wherever you get your podcasts. And we have a video version on YouTube as well. You can also sign up to our channel, and you'll be notified when a new episode is released. It's free, no charge. The Rock Podcast is now the number one podcast for classic rock, so thanks for listening. Find us at the website, therockpodcast.com, and we also have a Facebook page. And you can send your comments, questions, and suggestions to me at hello at therockpodcast.com. That's hello at therockpodcast.com. Thanks to one of our sponsors, authenticrockcollectibles.com where you can view a lot of classic items. Check it out. I'm Denny Somak, and that's it. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. 
FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points. Fantasy Points.